They're like, this is growing, but it's just not gonna work. And to have people who can be honest with you in a brutal way, it's kind of like break your heart, yeah. but know that it, they have your best interests in mind. And, and we ended up transforming our business to a marketplace. And had I not been told the truth, you know, it wouldn't have been the same story. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering business, ideas, entrepreneurship, investing, and life. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into the Fort Podcast. I got my good friend, Joe Dubay, the founder and CEO of Eden with us today. Eden is a workplace management platform that makes the office work like magic. I've had the pleasure of being invested in Eden since 2015 and watching them grow from a tiny company into one of the fastest growing tech companies in the US. We talk about things that don't scale, the things that founders and businesses can do really early on that help win customers. We talk about raising venture capital and we talk about the art of the pivot. When your customers are using your product differently than intended and you end up shaping your business in a way that you didn't set out to start with. So welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. Yep. Will you uh, give a little bit of background of how you came to Eden and what led you on that journey to Eden? Yeah, absolutely. So Eden was uh, a consequence of a couple pivots. As you mentioned, you know, we're a workplace management platform. So companies are using Eden for all of their services, um, you know, from cleaning, tech support, handyman. Um, for a lot of companies, we really function as their as a, effectively a virtual property manager. They're getting all of their services and they're also having this interface where they can communicate more easily with all the different types of vendor partners, service partners through Eden with one invoicing system. But to get here, we actually started with something very different. The early days of Eden, as you know, is, mm-hmm. uh, was basically tech support for the home. And that came out of going home when I was uh, in graduate school and my parents put me to work over Thanksgiving. I was just mm-hmm. doing tech support for a couple days, um, <laughs> fixing the TV, the remote, cold, remote control didn't work, um, fixing the Wi-Fi. Uh, There's a lot of things that required fixing. And so after that experience, I kind of thought like, why do my parents need to spend six months without stuff that's functioning in the home? And also when I come home, wouldn't it be cool to actually be able to invest quality time with them? Yeah. So initially the idea was let's create this Uber for tech support for the home. We started with that. We're able, we're fortunate enough to get into uh, y Combinator, which is an incubator, and started growing quickly with this initial idea. Uh, my co-founder Kyle and I, and and an early team, uh, founding employees, people like um, Camille Merritt and some other folks, and we were able to start growing with this concept. And we actually raised around five million dollars of of seed capital. You know, we were we were ecstatic when you, when you joined the team, mm-hmm. um, you and James, and. Uh, it's something where, from that point, we actually had enough data at the end of the summer where we said, hey, we're not trying to grow with businesses, but they're using our tech support and they're also asking us to do other stuff. And yeah. we've, we've experimented with cleaning now and with 
handyman jobs because for a business, if you just do their tech support, it's a very incomplete solution right? from what it could be. right? So we decided to make this pivot towards B2B and also, frankly, sort of another pivot, which was to offer everything. right? And from there, we were still doing it all in-house. This is 2015. And the next, I would say, business model, you can call it evolution or pivot, was we decided to become a marketplace. And instead of Eden hiring you know, 100 employees who did all this stuff, we said, let's empower a bunch of small businesses. And so we switched that point to being a marketplace where we really enable you to get the, the best local talent for yeah. all these different service categories. And uh, you know you're getting the best because it's empirical. You're seeing all these reviews through our platform. And we have this method of finding the right service providers. And we're able to turn that on across 20 metros in the U.S. That's awesome. You recently wrote a post on Medium that I read. And I was fascinated where you said, had you all stuck to your initial vision and been so rigid on that being the business model, you wouldn't have let the customer kind of tell you how it needs to be used. And it's just like what you just said. After a year, you kind of look back at everything you're working on and realize this is actually how it's being used. Let's pivot. Did you have to get permission to pivot? Or is it, was that like an internal decision? I think I, want, I was definitely seeking... I was seeking at a minimum a lack of controversy yeah. um, among our investor base yeah. and among our team. Yep. So those are two things that I, that I sought. The team was easier in some ways because everyone was seeing it right. in the company. They're like, it was actually funny that the, the first company that started using us was Tilt. Yep. Um, which you were an intern. Which I was, at Tilt. A, I was an intern at. I was, a, I was, a, <laughs> I was an intern at Tilt, it was a, which is awesome. It, it was so much fun. And so everyone was seeing it inside the company and they're like, oh, wait, it, we, it's weird. This, we've put so much marketing towards consumer, but it's the B2B side that seems to be growing. Right. So that wasn't a hard thing to do to convince the team there. Our investors, that was more challenging. Yeah. We had just taken, you know, $5 million of institutional, mostly institutional capital. Right. From really smart people. And we had to explain why things were different than what we thought it would be. Right. So for that, it was something where we, we notified our, you know, we notified um, our investors that, hey, there's this other opportunity that we're trialing, you know, in tandem. We didn't just switch when we saw the signal. We kind of provided monthly updates for a few months and shared like B2B is growing again, B2B is growing again. And, and by the time that we actually announced the pivot, which was, and really did it, which was in uh, November of 2015. So a few months after people had invested, I'd sent a few investor updates and, and it was actually now a majority of our revenue. Right. It wasn't that, uh, it was less controversial because it had been, I think, messaged incrementally and um, was now really the majority of what the business was. Right. You're, you were pivoting with supportive numbers that it was the right decision. Yeah. It wasn't like a thought experiment. Yeah. How did you find your co-founders? <laughs> did you know them before you started even? Yeah. So Kyle... So I used to work in New York and I was in finance and one of Kyle's college friends, um, I, this is before I knew Kyle, um, he and I became friends, this guy named Anthony. He was also working as an investor in New York. And when I moved out West, I asked him like, do you know anyone who loves design or is in tech? Cause I had read this book about design and I really wanted to like understand it better. This, I, this awesome book called the design of everyday things. And, uh, he introduced me to Kyle who is his college friend and, Kyle and I would start to go on walks, and I hadn't really met anyone quite like Kyle before. He just was fascinated by technology, and I was coming from the finance world where that just wasn't a focus in yep. 2012. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, and 
you know, he had his eye for design and he loved thinking about the future. So we started to go on these walks where we would just talk about like what the future might look like in different fields. And at some point I was like, oh, I should really, I'd love to work with Kyle. So I right. kept like subtly <laughs> <laughs> suggesting all the different ideas. And I'd be like, what do you think about this idea? This ephemeral messaging app, this whatever. And like almost without fail, Kyle's like, bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. I remember once he, he was like, oh, that's maybe an okay idea. And I was like, oh, do you want to work on that? And he was like, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not that good. Yeah, not that good. Kyle was the, was the director of engineering at a different startup, and he'd founded something once before. And so I kind of gave up on Kyle agreeing to work with me on this, but Kyle was the only like really amazing engineer I knew. Right. That was not a, a thing in high supply at an MBA program. Yeah. Um, although there were a few. And so what I did is that once we had the idea for this initial idea, the seed of an idea for Eden, right. I, I went up to Kyle and I was like, hey, do you have any friends who'd want to work on this? And I showed him a pitch deck and I, and I really sincerely wasn't even asking him. I was really asking if he had friends because he had said no to me at this point like so many times. Right. I, don't, I don't know if I could take, if I could take one more. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked him, he said he'd think about it. And the next day he emailed me and said, hey, actually, if you're looking for a technical partner, maybe we should work together. That's awesome. Yeah. You call you said he's an amazing amazing engineer and from somebody who doesn't come from a tech background, how should they know if they're looking at an amazing engineer or not? Yeah. So, I would say I've really learned that Kyle's Kyle's an amazing engineer um, over the last, you know, 3 change years. The things I had that suggested it before was that he had founded a company that had gone on to raise capital, he, you know, remained the CTO of it, they had an exit. Um, that was, you know, that was a positive outcome. So I, I had like a bunch of like I had a bunch of like data points that sort of suggested this guy was really talented. From him going to a great engineering school, which is University of Illinois, to having started a company, to having worked at Microsoft, there was a bunch of things that kind of suggested to me that might be so. I would say in general, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, I also worked on uh, some projects when I was at Stanford, and I and I remember working with a bunch of people who were really talented engineers, but they're earlier in their career. And they like, I didn't, I really couldn't tell the difference. Right. So I would say the best thing you can do is just start working on something. If it gets momentum and really in the early days, it's not usually about product. It's about just hustle. Right. If it gets momentum, you'll be able to raise capital. You'll be able to hire multiple engineers and like things will, will work out. Right. So I happen to get lucky with Kyle being as amazing as he is, but Really, the first year or two of most startups, um, and for a lot longer than I think most people think, it's really about the landing page that anyone can spin up and just hustling. Yep. Did you all start the business through Y Combinator, or did you start it prior to submitting for YC? So we had run a pilot right before. Okay. Right before. And, and so we had 22 jobs. Okay. 22 different people, which we basically disintermediated off like Craigslist. We were like, found people who wanted tech support, and then we found people who'd do it. Yep. And so we were just disintermediating another platform. And then like, you know, we also shared our landing page with a bunch of people who like would input, yes, I want tech support and we'd follow up with them. Yeah. Um, so it was a very, uh, there's an expression wizard of Oz. Like there was a curtain that might look like someone was doing something but on the other end. It was just super manual. Yeah. Once we did those 22 jobs, we applied to Y Combinator around the same time. Um, a few investors said that they were interested in investing, which kind of strengthened our case with Y Combinator. One was a fund called Maven Ventures, uh, a guy named Jim Scheinman, who's been amazingly helpful, um, Comcast Ventures, ENIAC, um, Canvas. And so a bunch of awesome folks kind of 
indicated strong interest right around the time we applied to YC. So we were able to come in there and say, like, yes, we're going to be that 50% of the class that has pretty much nothing, but we do have a bunch of really great supporters who are excited about this idea as well. What did YC do for you? YC did a lot. It did a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this thing, basically, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. is what YC is. So it's this cool thing where, I think the expression, this hedge fund guy uses it, it's called like reflexivity theory. And it's just like, when you believe something to be true and you invest behind it, it starts to become true because the market believes. And when you give capital to someone and help them believe, all of a sudden they're doing the thing that you yep. wanted them to do. So for us, it was like, once we thought, you know, that we belonged, and we had all these smart people who were sprinting as fast as they could next to us. There was such pressure to improve. Every week you had to show up and have 20% growth. And most people took that really seriously. And out of our YC class, there was a bunch of other people who had like no progress stepping into this thing. Yeah. And now, um, you know, TripleByte, Lug, uh, Verge Genomics. There's all these cool companies that have come out of our class. And these are all just folks who like just decide to believe together. Yeah. Do you, all, do you keep in touch with a lot of the folks from your class? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We keep in touch. You know, it's not one of those things I'd love to see it more than I do. Right. But um, there's some amazing people out of that class. And um, one of them I had dinner with a couple weeks ago, a woman named Robin, who started a uh, kind of like the leading LGBTQ dating app called Her. There's all these, like, there's all these cool, interesting folks. Yeah. Um, other, another individual named, he had to start a company called Instawork. Yeah. Um, that's kind of like a similar marketplace to Eden, but for temporary staffing. So there's all these cool people you can kind of learn from along the way. So you, you get in and just from even talking to James, it's a, it's a 12 week rigorous program. What are some, uh, if you could point to maybe one or two things that were like, damn, had we not gone to YC, we would have not learned this. Yeah. I would say the, so you're assigned a few different advisors. Okay. And one of ours is a guy named Michael Seibel, and he's just so creative. So I would have not thought of all the different ways that you could grow. Right. Had he not been our advisor, he'd meet with him once a week. He was one of the co-founders of Twitch, and like the way his mind works is just wild. And you realize that everything is possible, and you can do it cheap, and you can do it fast. Yeah. So I would have never tried all the different weird ways we tried to grow that summer without him. Yep. And if I hadn't tried all those ways so quickly, we wouldn't have been able to pivot because we would have never invalidated the first idea. Right. So I think that was critical because otherwise we could have spent a lot longer, burned more money, and ultimately, you know, may not have worked out. I think that, that and also, like, I think a critical thing YC does, it maybe isn't so much a learning, but it changes the supply-demand dynamics so drastically on demo day. You go up and pitch, and what the way it works is, there are like 200 investors there, a bunch of VCs, and they're real time saying whether or not they're gonna invest. So I'm getting all these pings that says, we will invest, we will invest. Yeah. You get off the stage after you've given your two minute pitch that shows like the few slides with the chart that's going up to the right. And there are, you know, there are literally a number of awesome talented investors who are like telling you why you should take their money. And that, that dynamic does not exist outside of this one specific day. Yep. So by virtue of just being able to get capital more easily, everyone gets a runway and they get two years to try to figure it out. So how, how, how much time goes by between demo day and then actually receiving those funds? Is it weeks, months, days? So it's probably a week or two. Yeah. So it's like, it just really just happens. Yeah. Cause um, the rumor about shark tank is you get your offer and then once the show's over, you do all this negotiating and maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't. Oh, interesting. 
on demo day, um, and I'm on the virtual demo day now, I send my notification to the founder, which mm-hmm. is like, I'm interested. And then there's a certain email that you have to send that founder that you haul back and forth, which I, which is like a thumbs up or good. Yeah. And it's kind of a, uh, a virtual handshake that this, this is a valid deal. And we, we move from there. Was it similar when you went through it in 2015? It was similar. Yeah. Cool. And it was something, um, I think YC is really helpful. They're kind of like the aggregator in this instance. Yeah. And so investors want to be on the right side of YC. Yeah. So if someone gets a reputation for breaking a bunch of deals and misleading founders, that person ends up not being invited to future demo days. So it really enforces good behavior in a way that frankly doesn't happen to the same extent post YC. You're kind of a little bit more on your own. So you you're at a YC, you've been validated, you've been given confidence and several of pieces of advice from the best folks in the world. Did you immediately find an office and just restart again? Or how do you kind of get out of the YC world and back into normal world? Yeah. So a lot of people like uproot their lives when they're in YC, right. especially if they're based in a different country or a different state. Cause Y Combinator takes place in the South Bay and you really go to like one or two meetings a week. At least it used to be in South Bay. I think now maybe it's coming to the city, but um, you go to dinner once a week, you go to your kind of session with your advisors once a week in South Bay, but we were always based in SF. Cool. And so we never had to change that. So it was a lot, it wasn't that disruptive for us. We did get some money, so we were able to move out of our, our first office was a room that had no windows um, in kind of like this like funky <laughs> little hippie commune. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we were able to leave that office, which was like the hardest place on planet Earth to recruit from. Right. <laughs> Welcome to your windowless room yeah. with four other people. We're going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> the future's bright. Um, and we were able to go to this other office with that money, which was you know still modest. It was on top of a mechanic shop. But it felt like a real startup office and um, we were able to kind of go from there. What do you do with the money that you raise? Like what is, is there a certain thing that everybody does once they get that first round or how did y'all use your money and what was it for? And did you fully know what you were going to use it for? Definitely did not fully know. Yeah. I think we were, what we ended up really using it for was we hired our first, I don't know, call it, 15 people, mm-hmm. maybe a third engineers, a third sales, a third kind of administrative other. Um, we spent a lot of money on marketing, some of which was smart, some of which was less smart. But hiring those people was kind of the way out of, of a kind of just figuring, finding product market fit. Because you hire, we hired a, a marketer who was able to help us, you know, kind of cut our spend and be more thoughtful. We hired a finance person who helped us think better about, you know, more on burn and, and strategy. We hired a number of folks who just gave us leverage. So I'd say it was really, you know, split between personnel and to a lesser extent marketing. Can you provide any color on what smart marketing is at the really early stages of a company and what less smart marketing is? Yeah, for sure. Smart marketing would be finding out if a channel works with the least possible expense, expense defined as some combination of time and economic cost and, and dollar spent. Um, I think we've done that in the past by doing certain things like um, we discovered advertising on, for instance, LinkedIn wasn't effective for us, but we discovered by only spending 500 bucks over an extended period of time. Um, bad marketing is not doing that 
Um, yeah. and so <laughs> we've done that. Um, we won't spend a ton of money on postcards. Yeah. And it was like a total, total mess up. We like, it was sort of a misunderstanding internally, but once you dropped, like, I think it was like, I don't know, 10,000 bucks. It was something that was like way more than you needed to figure out if this thing worked. Right. And it didn't work. Yep. Um, so that's an example of, even if it had worked, that would have been a dumb thing to do. Yeah. Cause there was some metric unit that would have, there's some atomic unit that would have been much more efficient. Yep. I, uh, I was on the phone with somebody out in San Francisco the other day and their entire marketing, not their entire marketing strategy, the core of their marketing strategy right now is to land their is to have engineers at the biggest firms in Silicon Valley post links to their company in the company's main Slack channel. Hmm. And they have noticed that by, if they can get Apple, an engineer at Apple to post their company in the, in Apple's main Slack channel that shares with everybody, their wait list grows exponentially. And I just thought that was fascinating. You talk about like low unit costs is find a friend and work your way into their Slack channel. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes you come across people who can, who bend the way the world works like that. It's almost like an idea isn't good unless it's a little weird. Yep. All the things that have really worked for Eden, when we started doing them, you like kind of feel like you're like being like a little bit deviant in a way that's like, okay, because if everyone's doing it, yep. it's almost definitely already efficient. One of the things I've noticed in a lot of our conversations, and I would have to imagine you've read OKR or the book on objectives and key results. Yeah. yeah Cause yeah. you, in a lot of our emails, I can just tell the way you write. It is, a, it's very much to that format. How much has that helped you? Like, like that book in particular? Yeah. Um, that was, yeah, it's, it's by that venture capitalist. John Doerr. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I found that to be helpful for sure. I think OKRs are critically important and I think everyone kind of thinks of them slightly differently, but the idea of have a business objective and every year we have called three to five business objectives and then have at least one to two key results that underlie it that are auditable and, uh, clearly measurable yeah and like you can measure at least with some frequency if you right. can measure it every quarter that's probably not good enough yeah you can you can do a lot of dumb things in a quarter yeah without oversight that's been tremendously helpful for us because at the end of the day and I actually got this from James um, a thing that I worship profitable growth that's what I, I that's what ultimately what we have to worship to build a good company so even if we're pivoting or changing or whatever as long as we're growing and we're not growing because we're you know, selling a dollar for 80 cents. Right. As long as we're doing that, then we're okay. Yep. And if we, if you basically stall a little bit there, there's something to immediately fix. Depending on your business model, do, do some VCs, um, preach grow at all costs and we'll worry about the revenue later. And then, and is that dependent on the business model? And then some startup companies, they're the same VC might tell them, no, you need to focus on revenue from the beginning. Or is it, is that kind of different uh, methodology depending on who the VC is? Because I think the big thing you read about and the, and you caring about profitability in, in Silicon Valley might be the, the, in, in, in almost in an essence weird. No, so it, it's, um, and to be clear, when I say profitable growth, because Eden actually burns money, and that's why we, mm-hmm. we raise, you know, venture capital and stuff. Um, I think about each unit of sale. If we onboard a customer, do I expect to make more from that customer than I just spent to acquire them? Right. Ever do I expect to make it back? Um, and there might be some multiple people, like 3x multiples, some people want even 5x. But is it higher than one? 
And is there even a path to it logically being higher than one? Right. And, and that's something, that, that's a customer that I think we should consider acquiring. There is this school of thought around spend now because later you will reap the benefits if you have network effects in your business. Right. That's not really how SaaS investors think, but we are a marketplace, so it is how we could think. Right. And that is kind of the, the Reed Hoffman, the blitz scaling concept, mm-hmm. you know? And I do think there's a lot of truth to that, but I think if you're doing that, you should have a lot of money. Right. Do that with 50 or 150 or $300 million. Don't try to blitz scale on a Series A of 10 million like ours. Right. Since <laughs> you're going to be, it's going to be a short stint of blitz scaling. So I think for, I often think about startups like poker and it's like, what hand do I have? Right. I have a good hand to not to grow in a way that I, I know has positive unit economics for right now. Um, but in the future, it could make sense. I think 2015 when we were starting, there was more of like an emphasis of like just grow. Yeah. There was this period of time where there were like no clouds in the sky and like everyone wanted to just go wild. But that never really, uh, that wasn't really the message we got from most of our investors. Right. What's the best advice that you've received from any of your investors? The best advice. You know, the one from James around, you know, worshiping profitable growth, I think really is. Yeah. James, as you know, is, is a guy who's full of a lot of really great quotable things. Yeah. Um, he's got he's got a wisdom to him. Yep. We get a lot of good advice kind of across the board from different folks. I would say one person, Jim Scheinman, um, he's always been very focused on how a product or service makes you feel. Yep. And early on, he gives the advice to name the company in a way that would provoke a feeling and to really build a company around the feelings we want ultimately our customers to have. And that's why Eden, you know, an idea of something that is calming, a place where everything just works perfectly, a world that's different, different than the one you're in. Right. Um, and it sort of has a magical quality that we want our customers to pursue through us. Yep. Um, I think that emphasis on trying to make someone feel something, yeah. start with that feeling and then work backwards, that was a really great piece of advice. That's awesome. And that's a competitive advantage that other people just can't replicate. It's unique to you. Yeah. So you're at a YC, you've raised money, you're now growing. Let's just kind of get into like the fundamentals of being the CEO of a hyper growth startup. What was your job when you started and what is your job now? And I'll preface it by saying uh, when I started Fort, we used to have this service called Grasshopper. Okay. Which is you tie it into your phone and when people would call it, makes it seem like there's eight different departments like press one <laughs> yeah. for accounting, even though they all led to me. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, amazing. so did everything, all things. And that's certainly changed over time, but, uh, maybe what's like the biggest difference in what 2015 looked like and what now looks like. Yeah. So I think it's, I have something comparable with Eden. You know, I was definitely customer support and sales. I remember early on tried to hit sales goals during Y Combinator. I wanted to grow 20% in a week, and we were like on really small numbers. We were like, we did 10 jobs last week. Can we get, you know, can we keep growing up? Can we get to 12, can we get to 13? And I remember I, we were at like nine, and it was Sunday, and I was running out of time. And I remember going outside of a Best Buy with flyers, just being like, trying to stop people who were going to get to the Geek Squad before they got there yeah. to take my flyer. Yeah. <laughs> so like, we were, I would say early on, you know, definitely everything um, yep. and scrappy. Still scrappy, but I think the biggest difference 
between then and now, because I think to some extent we still still work on a little bit of everything, is in the beginning there's this huge gulf between what is real and what you want the world to look like. Right. And so I think I had to be a cheerleader all the time because part of me was always afraid, like, will anyone believe that this gulf can ever be like, we can ever pass it? Right. So I think I, <laughs> I had to cheerlead all the time. I felt like I had to. Yep. Now, if I'm not in the office for a few days, I'm not like afraid that everyone's going to like give up on belief and go home. Like yeah. we have an amazing team. People are really capable. But I also think we're in a place where you can kind of see like where we've made some progress. And I think it helps me focus, you know, less on cheerleading and like more on just like trying to be thoughtful about our strategy. Right. So I, th- I think that's a big difference. Just like when, when you're not at zero, when you're at one, for me, it made me less paranoid that I had to always kind of manufacture hope. Yep. I love the, the really early stage companies when they're talking about growth and they've done like one job and the next week they did nine and they're like, we grew 900% this week. <laughs> yeah. Like we are on fire. Yeah. Small numbers. Yep. Small numbers. So you have offices in Austin. New York and San Francisco. Yep. How do you communicate with folks in other offices? Like, how do they get to know Joe? Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, and I'm really, and I, I've, it's really important for me to know them. So it's something where I, and I also want to know how it's going. Right. Like, we're still real small. We're just like right around 40. So certain ways we do this is I'm involved in the hiring of every single person. Yep. I'll at least have a phone call. And you so, interview every day. Every day. Wow. Every day. Yeah. So every day we interview a few folks, a couple of folks at least. So that's one way is it on the way in, um, being involved. Then we do one-on-ones. I'll do a quarterly one-on-one with everybody at the company. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a good amount of one-on-ones. Yeah. If someone, for people who I actually work directly with, who directly poured into me, we do a weekly one-on-one for someone who's like kind of a team lead, but doesn't report into me. It's, it's a monthly one-on-one. So we create like touches. And then we have a lot of team, we, not a lot, but you know, we have a monthly kind of like this mid-level leads meeting. Um, we have every week we have a full team meeting. And so there's like a lot of opportunities to kind of tell the story. I feel like, you know, I could still always do better. I'm excited to incorporate, yeah. I think maybe an email every couple of weeks. I know that I heard that Brian Chesky at Airbnb does it every, every week or every month of a full company still. Um, I know a few CEOs who do that. Yeah. I think that would be smart. But outside of just slacking a lot. Yeah. Um, in our team meetings, it's, you know, I do also visit those other offices. I was, I was in Austin two weeks ago yep. and the whole team, we went out to dinner and we kind of celebrated people who really, uh, we gave out certificates for people who really were living our values. Yep. It's like exceptional performers and did something similar in New York in the last month. When you think about exceptional performers and I think it's, it's it goes for every business how do you judge if exceptional performance? Is it through true metrics or you can just see it and believe it and feel it? So this is more through the feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause our values are, I mean, we will have examples when we give it to the person's certificate, but we do this once a year, this kind of little values um, ceremony. But like one of them is that we are kind and I can speak to the person, like the person who wanted this year is a, a, a senior SDR named Sam. And he really reflects this. He shows deep concern for other people. And it also, a sub bullet to this value is they put the, cus- the customer first. Right. Um, and I could speak to examples from that. And, but it is ultimately a bit subjective. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's harder to quantify that. How do y'all, how, 
I guess when you're coming out of YC, are a lot of the startups uh, looking at the same metrics and then you identify a few that are critical to your business? Or how do you determine like what is the most critical metric to look at? Yeah, I think YC is super focused on three things. One, what is your revenue growth? And if it's not revenue, what is your growth of the thing that you think will lead to revenue? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your runway? Because mm-hmm. everyone's afraid of dying. Um, and outside of that is what is your narrative and is it compelling and big enough that by the end of Y Combinator someone will reasonably think that you could raise an A and therefore they'll let you raise a seed right the the big thing you know even just from Texas looking into San Francisco San Francisco is really costly yes Uh, it's very expensive for office space living people talent Adversely, or on the flip side of that, there's a ton of talent and there's an amazing ecosystem there. This might be kind of a media-driven thing, but the the narrative is that people are on their way out of SF and you can now be a tech company in a lot more places. Yeah. Can you speak to that at all? I think it's true. Yeah. I think I think SF will not become unimportant. SF is an important, does a lot of things that are important. But like, who can afford the $130 square foot rent in South Park? area this building's 22 <laughs> yeah so you can afford it vcs vcs can afford it yeah i think if anything sf probably has too many vcs because now they should be in new york and boston and dc and austin but i think they're the ones who probably get priced out last right the and then the aggregators can afford that rent right google can afford that rent facebook can and they're growing rapidly in the, in the city i think startups can't afford it um, we just like if you just do the net revenue divided by number of people, right? We're we all look terrible compared to Google, right? And so, as a consequence, we have to go somewhere else. And so, I think we're seeing some people move, but I think even more than that, we're seeing in the last six months, I felt a huge difference of how acceptable it is to build a remote team, right? And a year a year and change ago, if you said, "Hey, should I build a remote team?" The smart money would all say, "No way." Yeah, no way. Maybe when you have a thousand people, right? Um, nowadays, the conversation has totally changed, and it's not just are you going to build an office somewhere else. The answer is almost definitely. Yeah. I think the next question is like, are they fully remote? Are they in a different country? Are they, um, or are you going someplace? Because all these other little cities that people used to go to, um, even a couple of years ago, are starting to overheat now. Yep. So I think the narrative's changed, and it's not so much people are leaving as much as like we are not hiring that same person in SF anymore. Right. Yeah, the, I read a really interesting article that basically all startup funding goes to Facebook and Google because everybody uses Facebook and Google for growth hacking and yeah. advertising. I think if you're a B2C company, 100%. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're B2B, maybe not. Yep. Less so. But still, like, working on SEO, mm-hmm. that's still going to Google indirectly. So talk to me a little bit about what the perfect customer for y'all kind of looks like and what the marketplace for the office really looks like. And then I've yeah. got some follow-ups to that. Yeah. So the perfect customer for us is a business that is scaling rapidly that really wants to focus on whatever their core competence is, be it, you know, it could be a technology company, it could be any sort of business, it could be some sort of consulting business, and they don't want to have to figure out how am I going to find the best cleaner? How am I going to find the best handyman? How am I going to scale this thing across, ideally, multiple offices? Mm-hmm. 
And so we have a, a number of awesome com- uh, clients that have maybe 10 offices or, or three or, you know, some that we, we have one that has, um, that has over 100. And for those ones, we're able to really streamline right. how they can scale and it makes them grow faster. And also we save them money because whenever they get any of these service providers through Eden, not only are they getting a higher quality service provider because we have the data on who's high performing across these categories, but they're also getting a lower rate because every time they're choosing someone, they're really having a little, all these different service providers bid against each other. Right. I think it is the one of the most underrated parts about business, especially if you're small, is if you need to hang something up on the wall or you need to fix a computer and there you don't have full-time people on staff, you're left with either somebody untrained doing it, which means they're not doing their job, they're fixing something, yep. or uh, you have no pricing power or no really contacts and you go pay $500 to fix your sink when it could have been done for 50 Totally. And it's a, it's a cash suck. It's a, it's a grind. And I think it is so um, underrated and the, the problem that you're attacking is real and it is such a value add. And even like, you know, sometimes things go wrong. Yep. Like as you know, we know in the physical world, there's a way to things go wrong a little bit more than just pure software. And so when it does, we play the role of the platform. We refund the customer, we find them a new service partner, we axe the insurance layer. And just making it so things can't go wrong, while it's not sexy, yep. uh, it can really matter. If, you know, if, especially if something's higher value, like a build out. What are the biggest problems people have in their office? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, I'd say the h- highest frequency service requested, yeah. to ch- change the question a little bit, is janitorial or mm-hmm. office cleaning, which also comes with the most problems because it has all these touches. There's more opportunities for it to, you know, for something to not be perfect. Right. I would say Wi-Fi issues are pretty consistent across pretty much every city that we're in. And outside of that, certain service categories see more turnover. So a lot of clients will get snacks and those clients are catering. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty common to see those kind of service partners get changed on our platform. Right. They'll go from one to another. Right. Um, so I think that's just an area that people tend to not usually commit forever. Right. You had mentioned one of y'all's secret sauce is how you find vendors within a community. Yeah. We don't, we don't have to share that on the podcast, but I'm assuming it is some type of ability online to reach a large audience in a certain industry or sector yeah. and figure out how good they are pretty quick and get them on the platform. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, that is something that's really differentiated for us. One was being first to market with this office management marketplace, this kind of model that we're in, this pure play marketplace. Um, and then two, finding out who was really capable. Because we have over 1,600 service vendors on our platform yep. across all these different categories. And knowing that these are the, the best several hundred janitorial companies and these are the best temporary staffing companies. And right. there's a huge difference between each one. It's not obvious from anyone's external marketing. Yep. And Yelp is pretty much silent. Silent usually or can be even misleading right for lies categories it wasn't really built for b to for b2b so we end up you know really talking to a lot of folks we do a lot of data mining online we build the really the first directory of who is super capable and also take note of, of who has not done a great job for right. high performance workplaces then we onboard them with our software we train them show them how to bid show them how to schedule the workers show them how to do all the stuff 
and then they're live. They can serve clients and do it in a really tech-forward way. And we're really proud of the fact that we get to work with, you know, all these amazing entrepreneurs and all these amazing small service businesses across the U.S. And uh, hopefully, we can be a great partner to them and, and be an economic engine to for their businesses. Is revenue made by you all by subscribing to the software and then like a percentage of each service that is performed, or how do you all make money? Yeah, so our software is free. Okay. So if you're an office manager or a CEO or a workplace team lead, um, to use Eden, you don't have to pay anything. Then you'll say, I want to try a few services. Yep. Um, so they'll be able to get, you know, bids for janitorial, for day porters, for snacks, for whatever um, construction. From there, and some of these involve the person, the service partner, going on site doing consulting. They're actually going to pay less than they would if they'd gone directly to that partner because we get a big discount. Right. We share that discount with the client and keep some for ourselves. Got it. So at the end of the day, if you're if you're an office manager, you're actually saving money on Eden by a reasonable margin than what you'd have otherwise, but you also have a lot more control and transparency because, and you're actually choosing the right provider. So we've talked about this a lot and it's what fascinates me about your business, but you have a channel into the office, which is where most adults spend their adult life. They spend eight to 10 hours a day there, more than they are with their family or friends or anything the capability to provide value and distribution into that office is enormous and you're a three-year-old company so you have a lot in front of you how do you think about the future of eden and not necessarily as a pivot but i'm assuming now that as you continue to build your client base and y'all raise more funding and are hiring more talent and you look at this world as like we have a channel into the office yeah there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, no, you and I, we, we bounce ideas off this a lot. I mean, this is an area that I know we're both passionate about. So I think that we're entering, I think we've already, I think it's already happened. I think it's ship sailed. I think we, we have entered the experience era for commercial real estate. I think there was a time when buildings were boxes that didn't require any sort of technology to help people coordinate, to build community, to request services, to control the space itself. And Everyone who's in the building was a tenant, and tenants paid money, and that was sort of the engagement. They didn't get evicted. <laughs> they didn't, yeah, if they paid their rent, they didn't get evicted, and that was sort of their prize. Um, I think that world is actually over, and we're just, we're just all realizing it over the next coming years. It's, we've now entered this future that's much more hospitality-oriented, as, as, you know, um, as we've just talked about. I know you, I know you're, you see it similarly. And the future for Eden is not just continue to empower these fast-growing businesses, but recently we've, we started to work with a, a number of leading co-working companies, co-living companies, really hospitality-oriented businesses and help power parts of their operations. And I think the next space is landlords. Yeah. And how do we enable landlords to provide an amazing experience to their, really to their customers, not to their tenants? Right. And how do we enable that through a combination of technology and services. And, and I really see Eden as a system of software and services yep. that enables people to have a better day at work and at the same time enables small service businesses to um, be more prosperous. Yep. Yeah, without going too far into it, the conversations that we've been having around the the biggest line item usually on a PNL besides payroll is rent. And between the tenant and the landlord, yet the relationship between the tenant and the landlord is often a very stale one. And there's just a lot of value capture there um, over time. 
Yeah. There's, I mean, such an opportunity. The, the hotel creep, the hotel world is creeping its way into all asset classes. And you can see it across every space too. It's kind of fun. Like you can, real estate, commercial real estate, I think it's about to happen, but you're starting to see it a little bit more in some of the residential high rises. Right. We're seeing it. I mean, think about how different Starbucks is from where people would get coffee 20 years ago. I know. Um, you know, think of how different SoulCycle is from Gold's Gym 20 years ago. Yep. Um, it's just like the idea of achieving community and finding meaning and, you know, being in a place that's aesthetic, aesthetically beautiful. Yep. Um, it's just everything is so different, and I'm excited for that to happen um, over the coming years in commercial real estate. Switching gears just a little bit, uh, you've raised a Series A, you've raised a Series B. Mm-hmm. What has been your experience raising capital? So we, we've raised, we, you know, we raised a seed and we raised a Series A. Yep. But we'll, the the B has oh. not been raised yet. Okay. But um, but I I do appreciate the. We will be raising the Series. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the future, in the yep. future. And my experience raising capital has been actually really positive. Yeah. I had a chance to meet amazing people, form friendships, and I love, honestly, like investors are, early stage investors are really fun folks because they like love the future. Right. They love thinking about what will be. They're really excited about the concept of the world working better in some way. So I've actually always enjoyed it. I don't think my primary job is you know fundraising, but I also think as the CEO of a company, early stage company that requires capital to grow, I think my job is to always at least have the conversations. Right. And from folks like you and James to who really helped me shape a bunch of different thoughts to yeah. folks like the people at Fifth Wall mm-hmm. who've been just incredibly helpful to you know. Kent at S28 or the Bessemer folks, like we've had folks, our investors have guided us right. in a way that's been massively helpful. And there's been times when I remember I've sat down with some and it was actually like around maybe eight months before I was going to, before we ended up raising our A and I pitched a couple of our investors, maybe a year before. Right. And they were like, you know, this, they're like, this isn't going to work. This yeah. is before we switched to marketplace. They're like, they're like, this is growing, but it's just not going to work. Right. And to have people who can be honest with you in a brutal way. Yep. Just kind of like break your heart, yep. but know that it, they have your best interests in mind. And, and we ended up transforming our business to a marketplace. And had I not been told the truth, you know, it wouldn't have been the same story. Right. So I've always appreciated our investors and I, as friends and also as, uh, you know, as, as really great sounding boards. As the company matures, um, and you, you, you know, you mature from seed, seed uh, investors to those writing larger te- checks. Not in too much detail, but like, what does a good VC do for a startup? Yeah. I think at different stages, different things. Yep. Seed investors tend to make a lot of bets. It's just the model. Right. So it's unusual for them to be super operationally involved. Investors in general aren't usually super operationally involved. Right. They can be strategically involved. Yeah. Um, or really involved in the growth side. Yeah. Um, I would say at the seed stage, it's about it can be about intros to A investors, and you know providing questions on specific things. Everyone has kind of a a lot of investors have like a superpower in identifying what's that thing they know a lot about, be it commercial real estate or growth or fundraising or whatever, and, and tapping that superpower as needed. Mm-hmm. At the A. For us, since we had two folks basically co-lead our A, S28 and Fifth Wall, they brought different things. S28 was much more a financial investor. 
fifth wall is a financial investor that has a tremendous LP base and was able to help us with a lot of revenue generation. Right. So they kind of brought different things to the table. And as they look forward to the B and beyond, I think I'd love investors who are strategically really valuable in the real estate community. Yep. So we will have, we'll add additional strategics as well as, you know, continuing to bring in some, some additional financial investors who have seen companies grow up or might have seen maybe companies go public because those people will become increasingly helpful as we go from being three to, you know, someday 10 years old. Right. The, I think it's becoming more and more table stakes, whether it's really in venture investing that either you had to have been in business or been a founder, like you have to know the shoes that they're walking in. And then to your point in CRE tech, which is getting much bigger as we go, people that have been in real estate, just having money is becoming less and less relevant every day, Yeah, which you know, 20 years ago, it was just about finding the only VC that was out there that was given money to early stage. And now it's, it's just transforming so much every year where, um, they just have to bring so much more than money to be relevant and useful and helpful. I think you're super right. I think you're super right. I mean, I, I know for us, um, also I think Y Combinator changed the way a lot of this stuff worked. Like mm-hmm. I think before YC people got validated at series A. I think now a lot of these incubators are validating companies. Right. And when you get validated earlier, that turns future financial capital into potentially great sounding boards and advisors, but they don't necessarily, you're not necessarily seeking validation in the same way. Right. And with, I think, especially in real estate, I can't think of a space that's more so, the right strategic investors can provide tremendous revenue. Right. They can help you achieve that next round. Yep. Or help you shape the product through feedback. So, yeah, I think it's, I think the world's really changed, and I think you're right. Um, it's much more, it's much more about the value add beyond the money. Right. Um, although I will say that there's been a bit of a reversal. I think a few years ago, it was like you had to be a founder. Yeah. There was kind of a real focus on that. I think now, like folks like Keith Raboy at Founders Fund now, and um, there's people who just like, who've been operators. Right. Who I think people are saying, oh, this is a great investor. And there's also, even Andreessen, which was like really pounding the drum of like you had to be a founder or being the drum. I think they are now, they've had a couple of GPs recently that they've announced who have been investors the whole way up. So I think people are starting to say like, maybe people can be really valuable regardless of their background. Right. Is there a pressure in the startup world that you have, you have to monetize by year seven or year 10 or at what point, and I know you're not close to there yet, but you have a great network in this world. At what point do you start getting pressure to like, we got to turn this investment into some money back to the investors? Interesting thought. Definitely not at year three and a half. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, I think there's that kind of a, a fun duration tends to be like 10 to 12 years. Right. So I'm sure I'm sure if you start bumping up against that, people are trying to get out. But I would say one thing you see with a lot of companies is you're able to kind of have secondaries along the way where existing investors can exit their positions if they wish to. So I think, it's, <clears throat> I think there's pressure to be... To build a valuable company, but I think people kind of know they can they can get out if it's doing well right. in a secondary sale. That being said, I think what Uber saw was interesting, which yeah. was like, and some of the folks recently, which is like, they have no desire to go public until they're enormous. Right. And I think that creates a different kind of pressure, which is, you know, Benchmark could have exited in the secondary <clears throat> even earlier than they did. They didn't need Uber to go public to exit. Right. But 
I think there was a concern that as it, if you build an enormous company that isn't public, does it have the kind of transparency? Does it have the right accounting, the right culture maybe? Yeah. And um, I think we're starting to see pressure to like go public earlier just because uh, you don't want to build something that's, that's like very large and less accountable. Right. Pivot just a little bit, just chat about you a little bit. How do you, or well, first off, do you have a mentor or do you have somebody that you regularly learn from or look up to? Yeah, I think I have a ton of mentors. Yeah. I think, honestly, I see the world as, uh, I see all, you know, most of my investors as, as mentors. I see my, I see my brother, I see my, my parents. So I think I have a lot of mentors. I don't, you know, I think you know, I come to chat with you all the time about what the future of real estate looks like. And, yeah. and I, it means a lot to me. So I would say a lot of mentors. I don't know if I have like, I've heard people talk about having like a board of directors personally. Right. These are the three people. Yeah. I don't know if I have like, if I would say it's like, there's like three people that I want to be that like, I know are exactly what I'm trying to do, but I think there's a whole bunch of mentors. Yep. How do you learn? Um, through reading mostly. How much do you read? I read a lot on, uh, I read a lot of blogs and stuff. Yep. And then I'll read maybe two books a month. Yep. And, but I'll try to like really stay focused on the stuff that will move the needle. Mm-hmm. Um, so different books on platforms and marketplaces and then separately just try to read things that I know will be helpful. The publicly traded filings, uh, the public filings of certain companies and stuff like that. <clears throat> and then just talk to our users. I read every piece of customer feedback that comes in. Oh, really? Which just can be a lot. And uh, so I spend a lot of day reading customer feedback. I do client advisory chats. I hang out with our clients a lot to understand what they care about. And then when we're building a product, like we're you know doing now in the commercial real estate space and, and hang out with you, like it's I really want to talk to folks who really get it yep. and um, understand the right things to build for them. Do you find time to read? Do you put like headphones in and, and listen, or do you just are you old school read a book and just get in a quiet spot? Um, I read on Kindle, so I'd say like um, that that'd be my preferred yeah. method, and I just try to create a habit of doing it every night before I go to bed. Yep. So that's more my thing, and then I listen to podcasts. Absolutely. Yeah. What's your What's your uh, What's your favorite way to kind of get info? Yeah, podcasting has this obviously this one, but but listening. I was became a fan of podcasts before. Obviously, I started one. You know, I have a young daughter. I will walk. I'll put her in the stroller, and we'll go on an hour walk, and I'll listen to a podcast. And anytime I'm in the car, I listen. So I tell people here at the office that say they never have time to to read or. If you have a 30 minute commute and you do that every day and listen to a book on tape, or if you had a 30 minute commute and listened to a book on tape, every time you commuted, you read over 25 books a year, just, just in that commute time alone. Uh, Twitter's become fascinating to me. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing, right? I love it. So I was on Twitter and then I hated it and I didn't really like it. And I got off for like five or six years. And then about a year and a half ago, I got back on again and I'd learned like the rules of Twitter are just don't follow people that are not going to give you the experience that you want. If you curate the right following, mm-hmm. it's amazing how many times I'm scrolling and I'll see something and then I'll just start reading through all the responses. And it has led me down. The best book I read of 2018 that we sent to all of our investors was a random book that Justin Kahn posted called Leadership and Self-Deception. Hmm. And I just clicked on it and I started reading people's comments. And so I bought it and I read it and it literally changed my life. 
No joke. Really? I, I sent it to all 80 of our investors as our investor gift of the year. Really? And, you know, I'm not always that lucky on Twitter, but you really start stumbling across these conversations. And the way that Twitter kind of puts it out is no one comment's more important than the other. Whereas in like Facebook, there's like a, you know, they post their big picture and then all the comments are hidden and that still remains a really big one. And there's all these small ones. Yeah. Once you start going through a Twitter feed, everything's kind of equal. It's, it's kind of weird how, and you know, there's FinTwit, there's TechTwit. And I learned so much just scrolling through Twitter for like 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that's, that's cool. I, I feel really similar. I have similar, like I kind of checked out for a while and checked back in. It was so good. I think there's like a voyeurism to Twitter that it, it's just aware of. Yep. Like everyone acknowledges that you do not know Barack Obama and it's okay. You're just want to hear how he thinks. Yep. Whereas I think Facebook, there's like some discomfort because it's a bit insincere. Like the person's your friend, but you haven't talked to them maybe in a long time. Right. And you're like, maybe know more about them than like would be normal. Right. Um, I, yeah, I think Twitter, Twitter is, I think having a really great moment. Right and, and medium. I love medium. Yeah. Big media. So the question I really like to ask myself, if you think about like your brain and your heart is something that you protect, mm. um, like I, it's my, it's my decision to pick up the phone, but it's not necessarily my decision what I'm going to see when I go on to a certain app. And so trying to think about it is like, in what ways can I at least kind of guard myself? Because why I got off Instagram and Facebook is I would be having a great day and I would just start scrolling and like all of a sudden I'd read something that would just make me upset or mad or whatever. And it's like, I just ruined my own day, but I didn't know it was coming. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so the question I kind of ask myself now when I'm reading is like, what is the intent of the person giving me the content? And whether it's Fox News or CNN or Bloomberg, all these big media, they are the ultimate thing is they need ad revenue. They're huge corporations. Mm -hmm. And so I, what is the intent of them delivering me the message to keep me stuck to the TV or whatever, or to actually deliver me something that could be useful to my life? Why I like medium and Twitter, these people aren't getting, well, I don't think, but they're not getting paid to write this. It's from the heart. Do I yep. agree with it? No, that's probably even better. It shows another point of view that's not there to make money. And Medium's done a great job of helping me really learn. Yeah, because cool. it's from the it's from the heart. Um, no, Medium is it's extraordinary. Um, I think it speaks to the power of Medium that you know even like we don't need to get into controversy of it, but that Jeff Bezos would make a Medium post. Yeah, it's it is a it's a really powerful platform. Um, which podcast, of course, outside of outside of this one, would yeah. you say is the one that you've invested most time in? Um, there's a couple Joe Rogan. Okay. I don't listen to every episode. I, occasionally when he has the right person on, I, I love the way he's it's free form. They're two and a half hours. They cover everything. There's one called invest like the best. Um, I love that one. Yep. I just read, I just listened to one that he did with Alex Danko okay. on this guy he was talking about just, it was, it was very future oriented and where the world's going and he backs it all up with statistics. And it was fascinating. Used to listen to, uh, well, actually probably my absolute favorite right now is the knowledge project by Shane Parrish. Hmm. 
So uh, he also writes a newsletter called Farnham Street. Yeah, yeah. And he's a big Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, that that kind of thinking. And so I started on his newsletter. Now I listen to his podcast, and it's gold. You know, I just started listening to that podcast. So that's I'll have to dig in more. It's an amazing way to. I mean, for twenty five hundred bucks, you can start. And I like to think of this as scaling conversations. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about today is stuff that you probably have to talk about a lot. And a lot of people can get to know you and you can get past kind of that first part just by either sending them an episode you've been on or for me personally, I'll send people, hey, just go listen to this episode and then let's chat. We yeah. do a great job of talking through what you're asking. Um, hmm. And it's not like reading where you can kind of skip paragraphs. You, you either have to listen to it all or you, you don't know what you missed. Yeah. Whereas reading, you can kind of bounce around and flip the pages, uh, podcasting kind of, and if you can get somebody, if somebody's really listening to you for an hour and a half, you've connected with them. Hmm. Like if they listen to the first minute and they bounce off, that's fine. But if you've gotten someone all the way through, they might remember you for the rest of their life. They might not even know it. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's also less of a commitment. It's just something where people can, it's easier to invest an hour and a half. Yep than to invest 10 hours into a really long book. Yep. Um, it's, yeah, you can actually do it while you do something else. And I think the the final thing, and I haven't really gotten into this yet, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way there, but, you know, Charlie Munger talks a ton about learning about all the failures that have happened. So rather than learn how to build a big company, go look at Amazon, go look at the 10 companies that died trying to become big companies, and you'll learn a lot more there. 100%. And so like biographies and history, which I've really never been too interested in, when I saw it in that light was, oh my gosh, I can almost hack the system just by learning from everybody else's successes and failures, whatever happened. So I'm going to start reading probably more biographies too. That's cool. Yeah, I recently started thinking more and more of the world that way. It, it frankly is a little bit less of an inspiring way for me personally, but I think it's just more accurate mm-hmm. that often winning is just not losing. Yep. It's um, not being the smartest. It's being the least stupid. It's being the least stupid. And like, if you look at like Vista Equity Partners, you know, perhaps the, the best performing investor in software companies over time, their big investment thesis is they have a big long checklist. And if someone actually validates, goes through all hundred items in their diligence process and doesn't, hasn't screwed up any of the hundred, that's a company they want to invest in. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it's, it reminds me of this book called Checklist Manifesto, but it's basically people perform much higher with checklists. And for sales recently, it kind of changed how we thought about it. Instead of being like, win a deal, it's more like, don't lose a deal. Yep. Because if you do the 10 things that lose a deal, if you don't do those 10 things, you end up winning. And so it's, it's a little bit less inspiring to see the world that way, in my, my opinion, but it's so much more effective yep. to just kind of see... Uh, offense, at least in startup life, as just playing defense correctly. And people want to know that they've done a good job. And when they see that they've checked off all 10 things that make a great sales job, like it's it's validation to them, I did what the job required. Yep. And when you're either doing a performance review or anything, you can go in and say, like, you did the job that we asked you to do. As totally. opposed to, you got way more sales than this person. You must clearly be doing the best. Like that could be a, a fluke. Some, you know, maybe their uncle ended up buying something and it was a high month. And so we are on the same page right now. We're taking every job in the company and rather than definitely has metrics attached to it in other ways. But if I want to go in and, and look at if someone's done a good job, it's just saying, well, let's define the 20 things that make a great asset manager for the month. 
And as long as you're doing those 20 things, I know you're giving it the best effort possible. And that's mm -hmm. really all I can ask. And it should translate to wins or we probably just need to adjust what the top 20 things to do are, yeah. right? Or we don't know what's important, yep. but at least we'll know that mm -hmm. if we do the 20 things and still find a way to not have the right outcome. Yep. So it's, it's something where we've been doing that with sales where we create a grid and say, did you provide social proof? Right. Did you, you know, create a personal connection? Yep. And it really has a huge impact. I guess I would just kind of wrap it up by asking just the question of your business and when you are in startup, like it is, it is all self-consuming. How do you think about life balance? Um, and not, not, I come from the, the world of, I love what I do. So to think of things as like, oh, I should not do this and do this. It's not really what I'm asking is how do you know when it's time to turn it off? Because the truth is you could never turn it off and there's always something to do. Yeah. So first of all, I agree with your statement. If, if things are going well, you'll actually have more things you could do. Yep. Things are going poorly, then maybe you could run out of stuff. Right. So you'll never get to the end of the list. And I think being at peace with that is important. Yeah. Step one. Um, then I think it's more about just managing your time in a way that speaks to you. I think for, you know, for someone like you or, you know, for people who are executives, I think there is, there is other people who are executives, I think that there is more pressure to not be something that other people feel like they have to then do if it's destructive. Right. And I feel that too. There's some pressure. Even if I want to send a Slack at one in the morning, I probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned to like, you know, it's not just about what I want to do. Right. Um, there are implications, but for me personally, if I were just, you know, just speaking about myself, I, no, I love being obsessed with something. I love like being really deep in it. Yeah. It gives me joy. That doesn't mean I need to work all the time, but I, I love thinking about it. Right. And I guess I know when to shut it off because it's sort of like the whole like recent <laughs> Marie Kondo thing. It's like, it's like in a moment where I, it's not fun for me. Right. It's a good time that I should um, do something else. Yeah. So if I'm really tired or I don't feel like I'm thinking clearly or... I'm angry about some status quo. I think that's a good time for me to go do something else. Yep. And uh, I've had more than a few moments where that's what happens. I'm, I'm really on this kick right now. It's not even a kick. It's, it's where I'm trying to just kind of get my mind to is when you're building a company, being busy sometimes feels like being successful. And mm. the more I read about people that have ultimately, you know, grown a great company, but also done a lot of other things well, you start learning that the, the best people at what they do know the two or three things that they need to do and they just stay there. And yep. a lot of times the problems and the issues that you have in your life or in your business are because you're always trying to do something. So you're just creating more issues than necessary. And so, you know, if you take like, like a Warren Buffett who plays bridge, you know, three or four hours a day, doesn't have a cell phone. He's got the third largest company in the world. Doesn't yeah. use email is like, well, how's that possible? Our generation could never do that. And yeah. maybe there's cer certain truth to that, but a lot of it is he reads and thinks and he acts when he knows the time is right and not on lots of little things with uncertainty, but the big things with like absolute certainty and he just stays put. Yeah. It's very difficult in our generation to be patient. Yeah, totally. You know, I, I was, I agree that it's busy does not equal success. Mm -hmm. um, and when I think about, I remember when I was, there was a time when I like really equated the two. 
Um, and I was, my schedule was packed and I fit so many things in and I think it ends up being kind of superficial across a lot of spectrums. If anything, it shows that you don't know what's important. Yep. And so I've kind of continued to, I feel like for me, whittle away. And now there's like one to three things every day I know I need to achieve. Yep. There's at least one to three things. And if I, if I do that, it's going to be a successful day. Yep. Um, and there's probably one thing every week that really matters for the company and it got to achieve that thing. Yep. Yeah, I would, uh, I would end it with the thought of in the world we live in today with cell phones and email and everything where you're just, it's like if I send you an email, I have now kind of put you on the spot that you have to respond to me. Or maybe that's not good etiquette, or maybe you're going to miss out on something if you don't. And I think one of the biggest things that I'm, I'm learning from, and there, I have not found one good answer that's just like, is how to say no. Again, you read it over and over. The most successful people say no to almost everything. Yeah. Um, how to say no to, no, I can't go to lunch today, or I can't go to lunch for two months because it's not, it's not mission critical to like what I want to achieve in my life. And as you get older and you have family or kids or your more time at your business, it, the things you were able to say yes to two years ago, you can't say yes to anymore. Yeah. And um, I think it's an art and it's going to keep getting tougher and tougher. Um, as you become more successful, as your company's growing, you're called on more. You do this. We join this charity. Will you? Yeah. And it's, I found myself just looking more and more as like, how's the best way to deliver no to people without offending or hurting someone's feelings? Yeah. I think it's tough. Super it's tough. tough. And it's, I think, and I think, I mean, I don't know how it feels for you, but for me, I feel like every year, like I, there are more acquaintances, but like maybe the social circle shrinks. Right. It's maybe I'm not, you know, and it, and in that way, it's at least somewhat, in some ways, I think like getting older provides some incremental focus just because every, the, the world maybe shrinks a little bit. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's super hard. Yeah. And it, I struggle with it. It's hard. Joe, thanks for joining me today. It's been fascinating talking to you as always. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for hosting. And, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Cool. Thank you, buddy. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review for us on iTunes. It will help more folks discover each episode. You can also reach me on Twitter at Fort Worth Chris or our email at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.